Welcome back to Gray Matters, the podcast of the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the study of the administrative state. I'm Adam White. About a decade ago, a leading scholar of administrative law wrote an article about the history of Chevron deference, and he called it the story of Chevron, the making of an accidental landmark. Now, accident or none, obviously Chevron has come to, to, to dominate the debates around modern administrative law. And in the Supreme Court term that just ended a few days ago, the court ended its docket with one of the most significant Chevron cases of recent memory, or so it seems, West Virginia versus EPA. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But at the same time, a book was recently published by Harvard University Press that traces in greater detail the history of Chevron. It's titled The Chevron Doctrine, Its Rise and Fall, and the Future of the Administrative State. And we're very glad to be joined today by the book's author, Tom Merrill. Tom, thanks for joining us. Uh, Adam, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Now, my guess is anybody tuning into the podcast uh, is already familiar with Professor Merrill's work, but just in case not, he's the Charles Evans Hughes Professor at Columbia Law School. He really is the leading scholar of Chevron deference going back now several decades, going back to his fundamental study of Chevron's domain and everything that's followed since. Before that, he was Deputy Solicitor General in the Department of Justice. He's a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and his work on administrative law has been honored repeatedly by the American Bar Association. And in case anybody didn't notice, he is also the author of the article I mentioned, uh, The Story of Chevron, The Making of an Accidental Landmark. Uh, and I want to say before we jump in, we're also joined today by uh, the Gray Center's research director, Chase Linkton. Chase joined us a few months ago. He's at the heart of everything we do in terms of our research roundtables and the working papers. And he'll be joining me on this podcast from now on. So, Chase, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, Tom, you wrote an article about Chevron as an accidental landmark. You've now written a 350-page book on Chevron. Sometimes accidents take on a life of their own. <laughs> We're going to talk about the book. But first, can we just talk for a moment about the West Virginia versus EPA case? Anybody listening to this podcast surely knows the basics about the case. So I'll just ask, what are your general reactions to the court's decision? Uh, right, Adam. Well, um, the relationship between Chevron and West Virginia versus EPA is a bit of a mystery because uh, Chevron was not mentioned uh, by either Chief Justice Roberts' opinion for the court or by Justice Gorsuch's uh, concurring opinion. It got a very glancing mention in Justice Kagan's dissent, but that was only to make the point that uh, uh, with regard to the tobacco case that the court decided uh, some years ago that uh, Anyone familiar with Chevron jurisprudence would know that the relevance of the discussion in the tobacco case was dot, dot, dot. So um, it's hard to say what the relationship between Chevron and West Virginia is because the court didn't say a word about Chevron. Indeed, uh, looking at the entire term that was just concluded, uh, as far as I can tell, Chevron was not mentioned other than that passing reference by Kagan in any case uh, this term. And this is uh, consistent with a recent pattern, which really starts in 2016, in which the court, the last time the court applied the two-step Chevron doctrine was in a case in 2016, uh, Cuso Speed Technologies, it was called. Um, and since then, uh, Chevron has sort of disappeared uh, from the Supreme Court's jurisprudence. Uh, it hasn't been uh, overruled. It hasn't been questioned. It hasn't been modified. It hasn't been reaffirmed. It just kind of disappeared. So the relationship between West Virginia and Chevron is a bit of a mystery. Now, of course, everybody on the court knew that uh, the issue in West Virginia was at, at one level, of course, was about the authority of EPA over uh, older coal-burning power plants and whether or not their emissions could be limited in different ways uh, for climate uh, change purposes. Uh, but also, uh, there was a very big... Uh, a more general issue about uh, um, uh, how what courts should do in reviewing agency uh, decisions uh, of this nature. Uh, and I think everyone on the court recognized that the brooding, invisible omnipresence, the elephant in the room that no one could see, was the Chevron Doctrine, and that the uh, West Virginia case was essentially creating a kind of a carve-out uh, from Chevron uh, called the Major Questions Doctrine. Uh, uh, but uh, the opinions are very careful not to describe exactly uh, how much is being carved out, 
or what remains of the elephant's carcass after the car got carve out. Um, and so uh, all these questions uh, really uh, remain unresolved for the future. Uh, um, but West Virginia uh, creates this new major questions exception, uh, which says that uh, uh, when an agent, when, when the question is of significance, uh, political and economic significance, uh, major significance, uh, that the court will not assume that the agency has authority to decide it unless the uh, agency can point to some clear statement uh, in its relevant uh, statutory authority authorizing it to regulate uh, in this uh, area of this major question. So that that is the interesting uh, development in West Virginia. Uh, there, there were, of course, some pre precursors to the major questions decision, uh, including a couple of uh, unsigned opinions earlier in the term about uh, the Obama administration's COVID policies, uh, the mandatory vaccination program through OSHA, and the uh, extension of a moratorium on, on evictions uh, uh, by the CDC, uh, but this was the first time that the court had really uh, expressly endorsed this kind of freestanding major questions doctrine, uh, and I think everyone in the court understands that it's kind of a carve-out from Chevron. Well, the point about the court not using the word Chevron really at all in this case and in other cases, um, just two brief reactions to that. One is I'm a, I'm a fan of old country music songs, and a great song is uh, You Say It Best When You Say Nothing At All. Uh, and maybe that's a good way to think about what the court's doing here. But a bit more seriously, it almost reminds me, as you described it, and I really hadn't thought about it in those terms, it really just reminds me of the way the court has dealt with a very different area of law, uh, the lemon test mm -hmm. in establishment clause cases, where the court, it's never overruled the lemon test. Um, I, I guess I'd have to go back and reread really carefully the, the recent case out of Maine. But rather, they just kept using it less and less and sort of putting it in a smaller, smaller box. I wonder if that's where it's headed. But I guess one, one last observation, Tom, is you mentioned the OSHA vaccine mandate from just a few months ago. I mean, in terms of you say it best and you say nothing at all, the majority in that case never actually used the major questions doctrine by name, right? It was Justice Gorsuch's concurrence who said, aha, what's happening here is the major questions doctrine. So it is a little interesting, isn't it, that the, the court in just a few months would avoid the term in that case, but here it really is front and center in the in the West Virginia case. I mean, maybe I'm just overreading things. I think there was at least an allusion in the procuring opinion in the vaccine case and also in the uh, eviction uh, moratorium case uh, to something like a major questions idea that, you know, we don't presume that these agencies have been given authority to regulate in these uh, uh, areas that have major economic and uh, political significance without something uh, in the way of clear authority uh, from Congress. I forget the exact language, but there was no uh, exposition in, in any kind of uh, full dress form like we found in West Virginia versus EPA. Interesting. Well, people have been talking for days about the case, and we're here to talk first and foremost about the book, uh, The Chevron Doctrine, Its Rise and, and Fall in the Future of the Administrative State available at fine booksellers everywhere. Uh, Tom, why don't we jump in um, with, a, with a discussion of the book? And for that, I'll turn things over to Jace. Yeah, thank you. So turning to the book, uh, what story does it tell about Chevron? And what can folks who think they know um, about administrative law learn from your treatment of the doctrine in that book? Well, I hope there's a lot to learn. Um, the... Um... I've never been a full-throated fan of Chevron uh, myself. I, uh, I've always been uh, somewhat critical of it, um, uh, even though I got my start here uh, working in the Solicitor General's office of, of uh, the Department of Justice defending the Chevron doctrine against all sorts of uh, supposedly erroneous uh, failures to apply it by uh, lower courts. Um, um, the, uh, I think that Chevron, uh, Chevron did uh, one thing uh, very valuable, which was to emphasize that uh, if, um, if the statute basically uh, has a gap in it, uh, if it's clearly that the agency is clearly given authority over a particular subject matter, but there's some gaps in the statute, uh, and the gaps have to be resolved by sort of uh, balancing conflicting policies, uh, that it's much better to have agencies do this as opposed to Article Three courts, because the agencies are accountable 
to the political process, specifically through the president, uh, Chevron emphasizes, uh, although, of course, they're also accountable to Congress, um, and courts are less accountable. Uh, and furthermore, agencies, of course, have experience uh, both with the technical subject matter and also with the way the statute operates um, uh, in, in its details. So that was Chevron's great, uh, I think, uh, innovation and um, contribution to the law of court agency review. Um, the other idea that Chevron, I think, uh, is famous for, and I don't think this idea is going away, uh, is that... Uh, these issues can largely be framed in terms of delegation. That uh, we want to we want to figure out whether or not Congress has delegated authority to the agency to decide the X, Y, and Z questions or not, uh, as opposed to just sort of assuming that the courts would decide these questions under various kind of uh, canons of interpretation, which was the sort of pre-Chevron approach. So I don't see. Um, I, th I think those contributions uh, are permanent. Uh, in, in, in the sense that, you know, we want to at least conceptualize a lot of these questions in terms of delegation from Congress to the agency, uh, in delegations of interpretive authority, uh, and, and, and that uh, when the question kind of comes down to one uh, that falls in, in a gap in the statute, it's clear that the agency has been given general authority, but there's a gap, and the agency is sort of the logical one to fill the gap of the space that the statute creates, that the agency has a strong claim um, uh, to be the one that, that makes the interpretation as opposed to the court. I think those are lasting contributions. On the other hand, I think that Chevron um, shortchanged a bunch of other values, uh, which we have long valued in our legal system. Uh, one of them I call rule of law values, which are which I kind of interpret. Rule of law, of course, is a very complicated idea with many ramifications, but I interpret it basically uh, to be the value of protecting people's reliance unsettled understandings about the law. Uh, and before Chevron, this was a major theme uh, in uh, court agency relations that, you know, if the agency had uh, consistently interpreted the statute a certain way, this created reliance interests and those reliance interests were important and the court should uh, give great weight to that uh, in deciding whether or not to uh, uphold the agency's interpretation. Uh, Chevron doesn't really leave any clear space for that idea to operate. And of course, its main uh, proponent, Justice Scalia, argued in many different contexts that, in fact, that idea was obsolete. Uh, and so uh, in Chevron's um, uh, idea about uh, uh, accountability uh, was important, uh, but it shortchanged this idea of, of legal stability. It also, I think, uh, at least as it came to be interpreted, shortchanged the idea that it's very important uh, that we protect the principle of legislative supremacy, that only Congress can re create agencies, only Congress can delineate their powers. And so it's quite important that courts, in their review of agency action, agency interpretations, make sure that the agency is complying with the limits on the scope of their authority. And I think Chevron does not uh, create an obviously easy way to enforce that idea. I think Justice Stevens would never have repudiated that notion and I think implicitly in the decision itself, he sort of gives uh, significant weight to that. But the the sort of snappy formulation of Chevron as this two-step approach didn't leave a lot of space for that idea either. Uh, a third value that I think is important, which was also at best implicit in Chevron, was that courts should try to uh, adopt um, uh, notions that uh, create incentives for agencies to, to make better interpretations. If we're going to say that the agency has been given delegated authority to interpret, at the very least, the court should try to encourage agencies to make these interpretations as as well as they possibly can. And, and I, I argue in the book, and I'm you know, picking up some ar arguments here from um, Kristen Hickman and Aaron Nielsen, that you know the best way to do that is by having the agency announce its interpretation through something like notice and comment rulemaking. Um, uh, Chevron was a rulemaking case, uh, so uh, you could say that that idea is implicit in Chevron, and there is some language in Chevron that seems to uh, approve of the agency's interpretation in part on the grounds that it did uh, follow some kind of uh, public process in, in reaching its interpretation. But later decisions by the court rather casually extended Chevron to all sorts of different contexts, uh, informal adjudications, uh, interpretive rules and so forth that don't go through notice and comment. So I think that 
that process point was largely lost in, in the jurisprudence that evolved out of Chevron. So given that focus on process and given the extensive administrative record in the West Virginia case, how well do you think the court's decision with its focus on major questions line up with those principles you just talked about? Well, I do think I would applaud West Virginia insofar as it, it refocuses the attention of the legal community on the importance of the limits on agency authority uh, uh, as being as having been delegated by Congress. Uh, uh, I think that the Chevron case law uh, reached its uh, peak, if you will, or maybe I would say it's nadir, uh, in a case called uh, City of Arlington versus FCC in 1920, in 2013, in which five justices, unfortunately led by Justice Scalia, uh, uh, said that uh, Chevron deference applies to questions about the scope of the agency's authority. In other words, if it's ambiguous or if it's unclear or if there's a gap or a silence about the scope of the agency's authority, Courts have to defer to reasonable agency interpretations of the scope of the authority. That was a recipe for a runaway administrative state. Uh, um, and Justice Roberts dissented very forcefully in that case. Uh, um, and I, I suspect, I can't prove, of course, but I suspect that he's been um, harboring a desire to sort of uh, uh, turn the tables on that case. Uh, uh, and, and West Virginia versus EPA partially do, does that in, in some significant respect by refocusing on the scope of the agency's delegated authority and saying that in certain kinds of cases, we're just not going to let the agency resolve the ambiguity. We're going to say that unless there's been a clear statement, there is no delegation to the agency. So we've, we've kind of turned um, City of Arlington on its head at least with respect to these so-called major questions. So I think West Virginia was a, a good decision from that perspective. Um, I think um, in, other, in other respects, it's not such a great decision. Uh, and if you want to, I can start cataloging some of the problems that I see with it. But um, I mean, uh, basically, I, the problem with this, the way the major questions is articulated in West Virginia is the basic problem is that it turns this into a political science question rather than a legal interpretation question. I mean, the court is supposed to ask in the abstract whether this is a major question of economic and political significance based on things like, is it politically controversial? Uh, how many people are affected? How many dollars are affected? Uh, is the agency um, uh, interfering with uh, traditional state uh, uh, functions and authorities? Uh, has the agency changed uh, radically its conception of the scope of its of its authority uh, relative to the subtle understanding up to that point in time? All these factors are supposed to be sort of looked at by the court independently of the interpretation question. This, this is not a this is not a typical canon or clear statement rule that kind of comes into play once the court has rolled up its sleeves and engaged in significant interpretive exercise. It's to be decided in the abstract at the outset if it's a major question or not. And then if it's a major question, you start looking at the statute to see if there's a clear statement delegating this authority. So I think that's not quite right. I, I would prefer that the courts, you know, interpret in every case to try to decide whether the agency was actually actually delegated authority to decide this by Congress, every case, uh, not just major cases. Uh, and so I think that uh, West Virginia is useful in, in the sense that it refocuses on uh, us on the separation of powers principle that agencies have limited authority and have to trace their authority to a delegation from Congress. Yes, I agree wholeheartedly with that. But the idea that only in major cases are the courts going to demand, you know, the proof of this delegation. Uh, I don't know what a minor case is going to look like, and I have no idea how the lower courts are going to figure out what's major and what's minor. Um, Justice Scalia in Arlington uh, <laughs> lampoon the idea that somehow there is a distinction between agency jurisdiction and non-jurisdiction because he says, well, what are you talking about? Big, important questions versus little humdrum questions? You know, he's very sarcastic. But that's essentially the major questions doctrine. Uh, you know, uh, so um, I, I, I didn't think it go, went far enough in terms of uh, it, uh, telling courts that they have to pay close attention to the scope of agency authority. Uh, uh, and I think that the the doctrine that they enunciated is more of a political science doctrine rather than an interpretation doctrine. I think lower courts are going to be all over the place in deciding whether it's a major question or not a major question. I don't think the court has the capacity to 
review all the conflicts in the circuits that are going to be generated about this. I think it's going to encourage political or what appears to be political decision-making as opposed to traditional interpretive decision-making. So in many respects, I think this was a step backwards. I mean, it was a major step forwards in terms of refocusing on the scope of agency authority, but a step backwards in terms of the way they implemented that idea. In thinking about how the lower courts might grapple with it, um, you know, one example I like from a few years ago when you know major questions doctrine was just kind of bubbling up is a D.C. Circuit case called uh, Loving versus IRS. And it had to do with uh, Treasury Department's regulation, I think tax preparers, maybe. And the, the opinion was written by then Judge Kavanaugh. And it's a it's a pretty brief opinion and it's it's not laborious. And the major questions doctrine makes just kind of a cameo. But Judge Judge Kavanaugh is sort of thinking about is this a major question? I mean, tax preparers don't seem that, you know, major. We see them, you know, every year on the on the street corners at the outside of the, the tax offices, dressed as the Statue of Liberty, you know, spinning the signs around. But but actually, that's what a, your tax preparer looks like. Uh, yeah, my my taxes are <laughs> uh, my t- as, my taxes are pretty simple, Tom. Um, but uh, we we but to that might not seem like a major question. But then again, as Judge Kavanaugh points out, it's actually a very consequential industry. A lot of money is at stake. A lot of people. So you know, he ends up sort of drawing a conclusion there. He sees it as a major question. But just a couple of years later, he writes his Harvard Law Review article, his review of the book Fixing Statutory Interpretation by the late Judge Katzman. And Justice, now I guess Judge Kavanaugh still, he says Chevron deference is very difficult. Set aside major questions doctrine, Chevron is difficult because of the line drawing problems between ambiguous and unambiguous statutes. And that's before we even get onto the complications of, of, of Chevron step zero. But then again, Scalia's whole critique of what came before Chevron was that it was too mushy, too many factors in play. And so it seems to me that in some ways, the the the, the problems that you identify with the major questions doctrine, it's almost timeless, right? That any way the court has tried to reach this with Skidmore, with Chevron, with what's coming through now, the line line drawing problems are so difficult. And and so a chapter of your book is focused on the indeterminacies of of Chevron, but it seems to me they're, they're perennial in any of these agency statutory interpretation cases with or without Chevron. Right. I mean, there's a lot there. Um, I, I do argue in the book, and I think this is correct, that, um, w- I mean, one big question is, why did Chevron sweep the boards the way it did? Why, why did it become the most cited case in all of administrative law? Um, why did the Supreme Court keep expanding and expanding until finally it uh, lost faith in this altogether? And I think a lot, the answer basically is is that it was, uh, had what Breyer called, uh, Justice Breyer called in an early uh, critique of Chevron, uh, appealing simplicity. You know, the two steps were very easy to understand, and it, it kind of organized opinions, it organized briefs, uh, and it, it kind of got rid of a lot of the cobwebs and the curly cues that uh, characterized pre-Chevron law and so forth. So I think that was really the source of its appeal. Um, and I think it, whatever comes to replace Chevron uh, ought to strive to try to capture some of that simplicity and, and, and you know, easy tractability. I think that's right. I don't think that clarity and reasonableness are which should be the the operative con- concepts as they have come to be understood under Chevron. They, they are just too uh, indeterminate or uh, ambiguous or whatever. Uh, I think in practice, what Chevron meant for the lower courts was simplicity uh, and uh, flexibility. These were like incredibly open-ended standards. And so the lower courts you know, could just rubber stamp whatever agencies were doing if they could care less about the case. But if a case came along that they actually cared about, I don't know if it was IRS, you know, um, tax preparers or not, uh, they could say, oh, the statute's clear and it doesn't permit this, or this or this is an utterly unreasonable interpretation. And then they could, they could, you know, overturn the agency without having to really dig too much into the actual statute, its structure, its history, and so forth, the way they had to do before Chevron. So I, I you know... I, I'm all in favor of simplicity. I, I think if we get something too complicated, it's not going to fly in the long run. Uh, but I don't think that I think we can do better than Chevron. I think you know, at, for requiring courts to decide as a matter of independent judgment that Congress has actually delegated this question to the agency is a good first step. Uh, 
And, and I think that's where the law should have been headed rather than the, rather than this major questions thing, which is only, you know, a sort of small step in that direction. And, and one that sort of misguidedly frames the question in sort of political rather than legal terms. But on simplicity, you know, I think back to Justice Scalia's famous article about Chevron deference in the Duke Law Journal, where he says that the, you know, the value of Chevron is its simplicity, but furthermore, that simplicity will rechannel a lot of energy um, back towards Congress, right? It will create a stable background principle, he said, so that even if it's a legal fiction, even if Chevron is basically legal fiction, its premise about delegation, it creates a clear framework so that people will know when to bring their arguments to the courts or when to bring them to the agencies, or ideally, when to bring them to Congress so that Congress will write clearer statutes accordingly. Um, I guess, so there's two, two points there. One is Chevron, I, I gather, uh, didn't work out quite the way Scalia had hoped. But second, it didn't really channel energy back to Congress. And I know Jace has some thoughts on Congress, but maybe we'll start with the, the first point about Scalia's vision for a simple Chevron, and then Jace will jump in on Congress. Yeah, no, Justice Scalia, um, consistently throughout his uh, years on the court, where he was always the cheerleader for Chevron, uh, would not only endorse Chevron, but other interpretational doctrines, uh, doc, you know, clear statement rules and so forth, on the grounds that this would force Congress to write clearer statutes. Uh, I mean, he, he, he basically uh, washed his hands of the non-delegation doctrine on the grounds that, you know, if Congress wants to limit its delegation, it can just write better statutes. Um, uh, I have... I don't see any evidence that that ever happened. You know, I think, you know, if you have any knowledge at all of the way Congress works, um, you know, uh, Congress did not start writing better statutes in response to Chevron. Uh, what they started doing is writing fewer statutes and then writing extremely long mega statutes that stitched together about 20 different subjects, you know, at the, uh, when the budget was about ready to run out and so forth. Um, uh, and and these statutes were cobbled together at the last minute and had you know inconsistent provisions and and very different styles of writing and so forth and so uh, Congress is really to blame for a lot of this stuff. Um, uh, uh, my book is a full-throated endorsement of the idea of legislative supremacy. I think our entire legal system depends on that premise, and and it's, it has from the beginning. And it, anybody that reads the Constitution will appreciate that Congress is really the key to the uh, federal government. But if Congress doesn't want to, you know, do its job of of writing statutes and updating statutes and so forth, uh, then what's going to happen? Well, power is just going to sort of seep away to the executive agencies and to the courts, and that seems to be what's happening. Congress really has to step up to the plate. But I'm not sure that these sort of interpretational ideas uh, are going to, uh, you know, impress Congress into sort of uh, trying to do its job. My question is along those lines, um, coming up with incentives for Congress to do its job, wouldn't they be f not forced, but wouldn't they have a stronger incentive to legislate and develop the necessary expertise to deal with contemporary problems if agencies didn't uh, take on this interpretive authority? And so looking at Chapter 13 and some of the reforms to Chevron uh, that you mentioned, what if instead of requiring courts to just exercise independent judgment, which is squishy, um, you would just say that they can't interpret a legislative ambiguity as an implicit delegation, therefore putting that policy right. choice back on Congress? Oh, I, I agree completely. I, I think, you know... Uh, not to get too much uh, into the deep depths of the history here, but I, I, I do not believe that Justice Stevens, when he wrote Chevron, uh, and in particular the critical two paragraphs that become the basis for the two-step Chevron doctrine, I do not think that Justice Stevens meant when he wrote about implicit delegations that any ambiguity in a statute is an implicit delegation. That idea was... Uh, Justice Antonin Scalia's idea in the Duke speech uh, that Chevron had created an across-the-board presumption that ambiguity is a delegation. And then in Smiley versus Citibank, uh, South Dakota, there's a, he puts a sentence in the opinion, the unanimous opinion for the court in a banking case that nobody cared about, that endorses the idea that any ambiguity is a delegation. Uh, Justice O'Connor repeats that in the Brown and Williamson tobacco case, 
And then it becomes entrenched in the Supreme Court's jurisprudence. I don't think that is can possibly be correct, uh, uh, that any ambiguity is a delegation. Um, uh, I mean, ambiguity, this is the broad, in the broad sense of the term, meaning any kind of uh, issue that requires interpretation is an ambiguity in, in this broad sense. Uh, there are all sorts of, I mean, you know, there are federalism issues, there are separation of powers issues, there's individual rights issues. There are all sorts of reasons about rule of law, stability, and protecting expectations, all sorts of reasons why we don't want just to say the agency can resolve any ambiguity as it sees fit as long as it's within the bounds of whatever reasonableness means. Uh, so I think that that was a misstep. It was, I don't think it was Stevens' misstep. I think it was a Scalia misstep. Uh, and my sort of simple proposal for reforming Chevron, which may not be timely anymore after West Virginia, but would be simply to clarify that implicit delegation does not mean ambiguity. It means more than that. It means that when you actually al analyze the language of the statute, its structure, and the obvious reasons for the statute and its history over time, that Congress has actually delegated to the agency. And so if you have a broad provision like you know, just and reasonable rates, uh, or if you have a situation like in Chevron, where the agency clearly has to regulate stationary sources of air pollution, but then the definition of that is non-existent or it consists of a bunch of, of, of words that don't answer the question before the court, as it was in Chevron, you know, is, is it okay to, to say the whole plant is the source or does it have to be each smokestack is the source? That is an actual delegation. You know, the, the, the agency has clearly been given the authority in this area, but the Congress, is, whatever reason, has left a gap. It didn't perceive this question or whatever. That's an actual delegation. But to say that any ambiguity is a delegation is basically to wave your hands and say the agencies can do whatever they want when, as long as there's an interpretive question here. Um, so I think, uh, uh, you know, it's behind, you know, Again, the, the problem with the Supreme Court in this area and many other areas, I mean, the Dobbs case is, a, is, a, is an example to the contrary, but the problem with the Supreme Court is it's very reluctant to overrule prior decisions and statements in prior decisions. Uh, and so you have these statements about any ambiguity being a delegation, which were entirely dicked up. Uh, but the court is, doesn't want to sort of repudiate that. Uh, and so it has to come up with this sort of workaround, which is like major questions, in order to get to the part way back to what would be reasonable, which was to actually to ask whether the Congress actually delegated the question to the agency or not. Um, uh, and if, if, if you ask what, asking whether there's an actual delegation, in fact, is going to hold the agency and the Congress accountable. You know, if the Congress hasn't actually delegated authority to the agency, then Congress does have to step up to the plate and decide whether it wants to give the agency the authority or not. And I guess that comes back to what standard of legislative supremacy is enforced at the time and then who sets that rule so can you talk about the three kind of approaches to legislative supremacy you talked right, about in the yeah book? um and i borrowed this from some earlier articles that i wrote on the subject but um you know there, there are really two as two types of delegation doctrines one is the one that justice neil gorsuch is so fond of which is the classic constitutional doctrine that says that congress can't give can't delegate too much discretionary authority to agencies. Uh, and so uh, the intelligible principle doctrine is not enough of a barrier to highly vague or, or, in, or in, in indeterminate delegations. The other doctrine, which is much more, and that doctrine has been enforced since 1935, as people are fond of saying. Uh, the other doctrine, which is quite uh, strong, at least in the statements of the court, is that, you know, the agencies have no authority to act unless there has been a delegation. There has to be a delegation of power in the first place. Uh, and you don't get into how broad it is or how vague it is or whatever. You just say there has to be a delegation or no delegation. They have no power, period. Um, that, I think, is a, is a live proposition, uh, which is uh, the court has enforced and is, is, is recently enforced. Uh, most recently in these COVID cases, it enforces that principle. Um, uh, and, and that, can, I think, can be revived and would be an important thing to revive. Um, the specificity or the lack of discretion thing I'm a little more skeptical about. Uh, I think if Congress wants to give an agency very broad authority to decide what level of air pollution is, uh, you know, threatening to public health or not, uh, you know, I think that's probably something Congress should be allowed to do, but it has to actually delegate that to the agency. 
Um, the third idea, which I think is totally pernicious, but which seems, I, I'm afraid, to be sort of creeping in a little bit, is that, you know, the president and the agencies can act unilaterally as long as it's sort of vaguely within the scope of federal power. And only if Congress steps in and overrides them uh, uh, does, uh, does the Congress have control over public policy. Uh, this is basically, you know, a plebiscitary administrative state in which the agencies are, have now taken control of public policy. Congress acts as a kind of a uh, checking function, as sort of a, you know, ombudsman that periodically would legislate to sort of override Congress, but override the agencies, excuse me. Uh, but, you know, that notion is quite contrary to the structure of the Constitution and the structure of our history up to this point in time. But I think it's a true threat. I think we are looking at, uh, and again, it's mostly Congress's fault. You know, Congress won't legislate on immigration. It won't legislate on climate change. It won't legislate on a whole bunch of issues which are uh, uh, on the you know tops of people's minds. Uh, and if they don't do it, then either the agencies or the courts are going to start asserting themselves more and more, and we're going to invert the whole structure of our government. But, but you're not optimistic that, that this particular approach by the court on Chevron in particular is going to help nudge Congress out of its, uh, its in indecisiveness. It's going to take something else. No, I'm not. Uh, um, I mean, not to harp too much on this major question stock and idea, but, you know, uh, the major questions seem to be defined in West Virginia as highly politically controversial questions where Congress has failed to legislate. Uh, so to say that the agency can't let, can't act in the area where those conditions apply is not necessarily going to get Congress to start acting. Yeah. We already know, based on sort of armchair political science, that this is an issue as to which the Congress is very unlikely to step up to the plate and legislate. Uh, now, maybe it will challenge people's energies differently. That uh, That's one possibility. You know, instead of constantly trying to get agencies to do this or do that, maybe people will try to organize, uh, you know, themselves to convince Congress to do it. That would be a, a valuable development if that happened. But, you know, almost by definition, major questions are, are going to be left unaddressed uh, because of the very way in which we define major questions as things that we have not been able to address through the right way, which is by passing a law. Well, we could have a whole podcast about Congress and the dynamics in Congress. We probably have had a few of those episodes, but I want to get back to the book a little bit, or the core themes of the book, as its subtitle indicates, The Rise and Fall and Future of Chevron. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on the conservative justices um, and the conservative lawyers' evolution on Chevron. We've made passing reference to Scalia and Justice Gorsuch and probably others, Um Needless to say, Chevron, uh, it's had an interesting history among conservative judges. It really begins and has its earliest advocates among conservative justices. And then the, sort of the, the reformation of Chevron or the uh, really the attempts to, to do away with it altogether is led by conservative judges. In fact, a few years ago, we had a Gray Center roundtable. We were workshopping papers. I can't remember the subject. One of our participants, it was actually a judge um, a judge appointed by by President Obama, who kindly joined us for the conversations, and he sort of said off, off at a sidebar that the the change of conservative judges and lawyers on Chevron is so head spinning. When he was learning administrative law, when he was teaching it, uh, they would be uh, generally the conservatives were the advocates for Chevron deference, and now you see Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch really leading the way on it. Uh, Tom, you, you, I mean, you served in a Republican administration. I, I won't ask you if you're a card-carrying Federal Society member or anything, but you've oh, yeah. written here. Well, you've written on 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 sort of conservative legal thought in general. I'd encourage listeners if they don't already know your paper from 30 years ago, Bork versus Burke. Uh, it was fascinating, and so I'm particularly interested to hear just your kind of armchair quarterbacking thoughts on how this change came about, and not just for the conservatives. I'd be curious to hear if you think um, the sort of the zeitgeist among progressive legal thinkers has changed around Chevron over the years. Right. Well, it's, a, it's a part of the fascination of the Chevron story. Um, uh, Chevron was written by Justice John Paul Stevens, who was in the middle of the court when he wrote the opinion and later became uh, an arch liberal. Um, uh, I explain in the book that the real origins of the Chevron Doctrine are in the D.C. Circuit. Uh, 
uh, and the first judge on the D.C. Circuit to uh, offer a full-throated endorsement of this two-step standard review was Judge Patricia Wald, who was uh, appointed by Jimmy Carter and was uh, thought to be one of the more liberal judges on the D.C. Circuit. Um, and only later, um, after Justice Scalia joins the court in 86, uh, does it become identified as a conservative doctrine, largely because of his advocacy. I think Justice Scalia's I think his motivation for his advocacy of Chevron comes through through the, the Duke speech and also uh, some more recent opinions, including Arlington, is uh, that he thought that the lower court judges, particularly in the D.C. Circuit, were pushing agencies to regulate in a more liberal, progressive fashion than the agencies actually thought was warranted. Uh, and so he saw Chevron as a way of reining in left-wing lower court judges. Uh, and I think that he never really gave up that idea. He sort of held to that idea almost to the very end. Um, what happened, I think, is partly that, um, uh, uh, you know, as Chevron uh, got more complicated, you know, the court ad adds a step, step zero inquiry in the Mead case. Uh, the court that can't seem to make up its mind about the relationship between uh, Supreme Court precedents and Chevron uh, interpretations by agencies, the Brand X problem. And then finally, uh, in the city of Arlington, when Scalia prevails on the notion that Chevron applies to the agency's interpretation of the scope of their authority, and, and Chief Justice Alito and Kennedy all bail out in dissent. I think that was an important development. I think that the conservatives were now split on Chevron after city of Arlington. And I think a lot of thoughtful conservatives, federal society members, uh, judges that were appointed by uh, Republican presidents, uh, began to think that, well, there's a problem here. Uh, you know, that Chevron is not, sim not simply keeping activist courts from overriding uh, sober-minded administrators, it's also uh, preventing um, Congress from uh, exercising any realistic control over agencies through the judicial review process. And so I think uh, a lot of conservative judges and, and conservative scholars said, well, if the choice is between separation of powers and the principle that, you know, Congress, uh, the principle of legislative supremacy under the Constitution, that Congress basically can tell the agencies what their powers are and when they, when they stop and when they start, and preserving the Chevron doctrine as a way of kind of keeping some lower court judges in line, uh, we, we prefer separation of powers. I think that's what sort of happened. Thomas uh, uh, is a dramatic uh, turnabout. You know, he, he writes the Brand X opinion. He joins Scalia in the Arlington case. And then within two years, he's writing concurring opinions suggesting that Chevron violates the Constitution. He's got the wrong clause. He says it violates Article 3 of the Constitution, which gives the courts, you know, stolen unique power to interpret the law in a contested case, which I think is not right, but um, he, he, he becomes an anti-Chevron person. I think that uh, certainly both Gorsuch and Kavanaugh were uh, nominated by President Trump in significant part because they were on record as being anti-Chevron. So I think what's happened at the Supreme Court level is just kind of a paralysis because uh, the court is split into various factions uh, about Chevron and Nobody can figure out where this, where the five vote equilibrium is. Uh, you know, I don't. I think the Roberts types, uh, probably maybe this includes Alito and, and maybe Barrett uh, uh, and maybe Kavanaugh, even though he's not so keen on Chevron. Uh, probably very worried about you know overruling Chevron. You know, uh, what's it, what are the lower courts going to say if, if the court says, well, we applied Chevron in 107 cases ourselves. But we've now concluded after careful reflection that it's based on it's fundamentally flawed and was wrong from the beginning. Okay, that's not going to go over very well. Uh, the lower courts end up trouble following the court's uh, ideas as to what's supposed to replace Chevron if the court does that. Um, so I think there's a body of justices on the court who are very worried about to radical surgery on Chevron. I think the liberals now kind of like Chevron because they like the administrative state. They think they've got more going for them there than they do uh in Congress or in the courts. Um, and, you know, uh, and then you've got this faction that maybe includes Thomas and Gorsuch, which would, would just basically wipe the slate clean and say Chevron was a mistake, we're sorry. 
So I, I don't think there's, it's not clear that there are five votes, and I don't think the court is going to move until it can see its way of five votes to, you know, do something that modifies Chevron in an in important respect, other than maybe doing little tweaks like the major questions doctrine, uh, where a coalition can be formed between the non-delegation wing of, of uh, Gorsuch's and so forth, and, and Justice Roberts, who wants to vindicate his position in Arlington. Uh, um so uh, that's where I think things stand right now. Um, and the fact that Chevron is never mentioned, I think, reflects the fact that there's this kind of tacit agreement among the justices. That they're not going to say anything about it until they can figure out collectively what they want to do about it. Thank you for that. And we're almost at time, and I could talk with you about all of the different ways Chevron has evolved over the years and why the justices need to take that historical experience into account as they think about how to move forward. But I think Adam had some concluding thoughts. Well, there was one one point that came up at the very beginning, a question that Jace asked you. I just want to circle back to it. He, he, he asked the question, for those who feel like they already know the ins and outs of Chevron, they've been teaching it, writing about it, complaining about it, praising it. Um, what if, if there's one new takeaway that you think this book sh um, offers them, don't tell them the whole thing because you want them to go read it and find out. But but what would you say is 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 sort of the extra contribution for for readers like those? Well, I, I do think that the the key pivot point is what we mean by an implicit delegation. I mean, Chevron introduces the idea of delegated interpretive authority. I don't think that idea is going to go away. Uh, but the key question is when has Congress implicitly delegated authority to make the agency the primary interpreter? And I think I, I have a maybe overly long argument that comes about in different chapters that, you know, ambiguity alone cannot be an implicit delegation. I think that's a key takeaway. Yeah. I think the idea of protecting uh, expectations about uh, law when things are settled, they, they, it's important for courts to enforce settled expectations as part of the rule of law. That was a theme before Chevron. It does not go away with Chevron. Justices and judges cannot resist making the point that, well, you know, if this was well-established in agency interpretation, maybe we should give it extra weight. Even Justice Scalia has uh, acknowledged that when it's useful uh, in, in opinions. Uh, I think that is an important idea that's not gone away and is going to have to be part of whatever replaces Chevron. So I would say, and, and you know, there are all sorts of examples of how Chevron taken to its nth degree, has been very pernicious. I mean, we have like the whole net neutrality controversy, which flip-flops from one administration to the next. That can't be good for industry, knowing what kind of investments to make uh, in, in uh, with respect to internet service pr provision and so forth. You have things like wetland regulation, which flip-flops from one, regulation, one administration to another. You've got, uh, of course, climate change uh, flip-flopping from one administration to another. So a lot of instability has been create, created by this sort of super streamlined implicit delegation ambiguity means and de delegation idea of Chevron. It's produced a lot of instability. I think it's time for the courts to do something to reduce that instability uh, and, and, and try to create uh, more of a sense that, you know, uh, the law, we're going to tell you what, what the limits of the law are and we're going to stick to that until Congress changes it. You know, I think the instability issue is particularly important to Chief Justice Roberts. Uh, he, more than any other justice, has really zeroed in on that at oral Gorsuch argument. Gorsuch, too, actually. Gorsuch, too. That's, that's right, including in his Tenth Circuit opinions. Um, for Roberts, you see it pop up in oral argument questions. Uh, you saw it in even cases like King v. Burwell. Why did he not want, why was it a major question? Why would it, why should there not be Chevron deference in King v. Burwell, the, the Affordable Care Act uh, insurance subsidy case? In part, it was because of the risk of, as he indicated at oral argument, the risk of flip-flopping from one administration exactly. to the next. Right. Um, he, he felt he did not want the next Republican administration to undo the Affordable Care Act based on this interpretive glitch. Now, I always like it at oral argument, he often needles government lawyers when they're defending a change in policy, and he'll try to get them to admit, come on, this is really because it's not because wisdom came late, it's because an election came lately. Um, but again, that's an entire other podcast. And you mentioned wetlands. The Supreme Court will be returning to that issue in the fall in the Sackett case. And so maybe the justices uh, will take time to, to read this book before they do. Uh, I do want to say before we go, 
The major questions doctrine, non-delegation, these are issues that the Gray Center has returned to time and time again. We've um, held workshops, roundtables on these subjects. You can find some of the papers in their earlier forms in our working paper series on the website. One paper that Professor Merrill has written uh, in conjunction with the Gray Center that I just want to point out to our readers as part of a symposium we had about a year ago in honor of the late Judge Stephen Williams of the D.C. Circuit, we invited a variety of scholars to write on uh, Judge Williams' legacy, and Professor Merrill was kind enough to write the paper focusing squarely on Chief on Judge Williams' legacy in administrative law. Uh, the, the, the pre-final version of that paper is on the Gray Center's working papers page, but all the papers are coming out soon in an issue of the NYU Journal of Law and Liberty. So I hope everybody will look for that issue. I hope they'll look for the book we've been discussing today, The Chevron Deference, Its Rise, Fall, and uh, Future of the Administrative State. And again, we're so glad to be joined today by its author, Tom Merrill. Tom, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Adam. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. And thanks, as always, to our listeners for tuning in. Please join us for the next episode of Gray Matters. This has been an episode of Gray Matters. If you enjoyed this discussion, check out all of our episodes on our website at administrativestate.gmu.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at AdLawCenter. Center. 